This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 86 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me again today is Nick Jubber, and we're talking about his newest book, The Fairy Tellers, which follows several fairy tales, their origins and evolutions, and explores the people who originally told them. As you'll hear, fairy tales, like all stories, are rooted deeply in place. So, of course, we talk about the fairy tales themselves, but we also chat about how his experiences traveling and using the notebooks of travel's past helped him write this book. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say, please tell your friends about the podcast, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, and support the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, join the hundreds of other subscribers and sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly emailed roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. That's with two S's and two T's. A new roundup goes out at the first of the month. So now, here is Nick Jubber. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to chat with you again, especially after meeting you in person in London a few weeks back. And um, before that, I think we last spoke about your previous book, Epic Continent. What was that, like two years ago now um, for the podcast? Yeah, I think it was about two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this uh, new book of yours, The Fairy Tellers, I think picks up where the last one left off in, in a way. I mean, that book was about literary epics. And this new one is about uh, fairy tales or the tellers of fairy mm-hmm. tales. Um, right. So why, why fairy tales? Why this subject? Oh, well, fairy tales have always fascinated me. And I suppose I've been sort of working towards, towards looking into fairy tales in some form for many years. And I think they've influenced a lot of things I've written in the past. I mean, to give an example, I wrote a book uh, uh, many years ago about the the Persian epic, the, the Shahnameh, the Book of Kings. And one of the stories in that is it's an amazing epic collection of, of stories about 50 reigns stretching over thousands of years written by this wonderful poet called Ferdowsi. And one of the stories is about a, a, a young woman with, with her long hair and she's in a tower and she dangles down her long hair and there's a, um, a knight who comes to to meet her and they've both fallen in love with each other from reports of each other and she says that he should climb up the tower on uh, on her hair and uh, in the in this version of the story the the knight zal says no i'm going to climb up the tower my own way and he uses rope in his ha- own hands to get up to the top and then they meet at the top and and embrace each other and and drink wine together and, and declare their undying love for each other and that of course is the 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 story of rapunzel, rapunzel yeah yeah, but that's the the earliest version of of that aspect of that story, that sort of iconic image of it. So it's sort of throughout traveling in different places and looking into storytelling in different ways. As you mentioned, I, I wrote a, a book about Europe's epic stories a few years ago, and and I constantly felt like elements of fairy tales were sort of pricking my ears and and 
found myself thinking more and more, well, I'd like to delve into those more. And there's something that I've been fascinated all through my life. I mean, as a child, I had fairy tales read to me and some of my earliest reading experiences were of, of reading fairy tales. I had this very vivid memory of, of reading the Snow Queen and, and imagining that my bed was turning into Lapland, the sheets all around were turning to ice and snow and I was riding on the talking reindeer to the palace of the Snow Queen. And as I went through life, I think there's that sort of period when I think a lot of people sort of discard fairy tales and I don't think I did really. I, I carried on being really fascinated by them and uh, writing s stories with fairy tale characters as a, as a, as a teenager and, 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 and then continuing with that interest into adulthood. So I think they were always something that I was going to come back to, but it was a question of finding the particular story. And it was when I started thinking about the lives behind the fairy tales and who were the people who, who invented the tales or collected the tales or transmitted the tales to the collectors in some cases. And I found this this pattern that, that I found and continue to find very moving, which is of a sort of tension between these incredibly beautiful and very iconic tales and what were often very modest lives of, of very ordinary people who, who, who did really important things in shaping those tales, but didn't always receive much reward or credit and or certainly didn't live very glamorous lives themselves. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you um, you brought that up. You, you'd mentioned the earliest uh, versions of that aspect of of Rapunzel, and you also mentioned your work with you know the the epics as well. And it seems to me that there might be some kind of like overlap between the the ancient literary traditions, especially when we're talking about like the oral traditions of storytelling and uh, like the fairy tales. And I think it was from Epic Continent. Do, am I remembering this correctly? There was a part in your book, maybe you went to Serbia and saw some puppets. Is that, is that correct? There's uh, the Serbia, I, I met the Guslers who perform okay. epic poetry in Serbia and in Bosnia. And, and then in Sicily, I met puppeteers okay. who perform the, the Song of Roland with, okay. with um, wonderfully designed puppets. Okay. Yeah. But there seems to be some sort of kind of, uh, kinship or overlap between, you know, the stories of old. So maybe you can help um, clarify this. Like what sets a fairy tale apart from, say, like a literary epic, the kind that you covered in, in your previous book? Oh, yeah. Well, they, they're very different in many ways because an epic tends to be quite a long story. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a story from, often from the court. It, the epics were often told by, by bards or, or poets of the court. The thing that I think sets fairy tales apart is that they're stories of the folk. They're, they're the stories that were told around the half place by ordinary people and passed down through the ordinary folk, which is why when the Grimm brothers came to collecting their stories, they, they talked incessantly about this idea of collecting tales from the mouths of the folk, mm -hmm. which wasn't necessarily the case, actually, in, in reality. <laughs> they were often collecting stories just from the young women who lived across the road from them. But it was that idea that, that it's, it's, it's the, 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 the roots, the earth of, 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 of the nation in some way. So there's that sort of class difference, I think, between them. But also it's about that epics really are stories for, for grown ups and, and, and often for the elites. And, uh, and, and they're wonderful stories. And, and they draw on so many elements that, 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 that are beloved by people across all sorts of strata of society. Um, which is why you know a story like like the Odyssey has has such a universal appeal, but also was 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 recited in 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 the Panathenaeum uh, ceremonies to to you know huge audiences. But fairy tales, I, I think, are more. They're, they're they're shorter stories, of course. They're mm -hmm. they're more they're more concise. 
and they they're stories that can be told to children in some way. But I think what epics and fairy tales have in common is that oral root that 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 they both tend to have, and that's something that's fascinated me for many years. This idea of of oral storytelling, and partly because it's it's something that I love to do when I travel to meet storytellers and, and other artists and performers, and to to talk to people about the stories that they tell, and and to get that sense of how 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 stories connect with the places that people come from. I think that they often tell us so much about a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and throughout the book, I think especially at the end of your your new book, there's kind of like a family tree of kind of units of fairy tales, like uh, you know, connecting the dots between some ideas that we see in different tra- traditions and in different fairy tales around around the world, which is kind of fascinating to see. You know how it like trees off. You can if you can kind of like depict a you know um, an evolution chart. <laughs> this kind of like what we're looking at and the stories yeah. evolve um, because it is an oral tradition and things it's like the telephone yeah game. things change well well absolutely and i think that's it, one of the exciting things about fairy tales is the way that they travel and and they move around from 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 one place to another and it's very hard to pin down the actual roots of the stories but we can often see the trajectories because they they often follow the same routes as as trade you know often the merchants routes through places like through routes like the silk road as well as mm-hmm. diseases so you can track stories i mean there's i remember one story for example which is this tale of, from from a kashmiri collection the ocean of the streams of story and it's the tale of upakosa and the and her suitors and it's about a, a young woman who has to fend off various harassers whilst her husband's away and so she she locks them all into a cabinet and then um, has them publicly exposed and that tale was retold in the a thousand and one nights so it made its way from india to 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 the middle east and and then we find a version we find elements of it in in italy and going all the way through europe right up to uh, to to norse literature and to iceland and um, stories like i think there's a version called mastermaid and it also appears in in the decameron and in chaucer's canterbury tales in i think it's the Fan- the franklin's tale so it's i find it so exciting to see how you can trace these elements of stories sometimes really specific and really sort of complicated structures of stories and you can sense that they are moving because they they become slightly different as they move along so it's like that idea of the chinese whisper that that they as as they move along the journey they they start to change more and more and they take on different elements of the landscapes and the the the, the communities that they move among but they retain some sort of core consistency um i want to kind of double click on something that you mentioned when you were talking about perhaps the difference between epics and um fairy tales and you said something about um epics being for for grown-ups and you know fa- fairy tales having a, a younger audience but man, i remember reading you know the original versions of of some of these fairy tales um that i was told as a kid and i was shocked at how different they they are from the versions that that were told to me and like how adult the original seem uh the original stories uh were um and it's, i guess it's kind of not unlike going back and watching a disney film as an adult and you know you pick up on these very adult themes that you completely missed (laughs) as a kid yeah um so but we associate fairy tales with children and maybe that's a little bit misguided because of like the morality element and frankly like how kind of frightening some of these uh might be yeah well i think 
one of the things I suppose is that the the very idea of what is something appropriate for children is a sort of post 19th, 19th century and post 19th century construct really huh. there's a disconnect from about the 19th century onwards where you you find much more concern about what is appropriate material for children and 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 conversely for adults whereas before that and it there are depending on which society you're looking at, which, which country and so on, you, you see various different versions of this. There's not such a clear sense of that distinction. So mm. there is a debate, I think, amongst scholars about what fairy tales were intended for children and what, and what weren't. But I think that it's just a sort of, a sort of shorthand way of, of defining a, a fairy tale is that it will have some kind, of, some kind of magical or supernatural element in it, usually, that that appeals in some way to children but that doesn't mean that the whole story will necessarily feel today as if it's a, a story suitable for children i mean it it's one of the things that fascinates me when you look back through history and you find a lot of stories there's there's stories with with really quite grotesque sort of elements of incest in them or with right. terrible violence in them right. that go back through to through the 19th 18th 17th centuries and that i certainly would not um, narrate to to my kids but <laughs> then at the same time you can adapt these stories and that's one of the exciting things about any oral tradition is that is that they are adaptable they they can change and i think one of the fascinating things with fairy tales is the way that they evolve and just as they've traveled through this through through nations and and traveled geographically they've they've also traveled morally i suppose and 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 had new ideas attached to them and, and evolved into very different stories from how they might have started off Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a book not just about the tales themselves and how they evolved, um, though it is uh, it, it is involving this idea, but it's it's also about the 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 people that that told them um, and the people that compiled them and wrote them down. So, why did you um, choose to kind of focus on the stories of the tellers alongside the stories, uh, the fairy tales themselves? What was the appeal of um, by looking at uh, the people um, who are known for, for having um, written them or um, compiling them? Well, it's partly that I was looking at a different angle on fairy tales from, from, from what we usually receive. Obviously, there's a huge amount of books out there about fairy tales, but I found that they tend to focus more on the, the tales than the tellers. Mm -hmm. And as I looked into the history behind some of these tellers, I felt like there were a lot of stories that are very untold or, or have not been told very much. And obviously it, it varies across the different tellers who I've written about. So, um, for example, I've, I've written about Hans Christian Andersen, who has been written about a huge amount um, and many biographies and even movies have been made about him. But I think because he's often been presented as this sort of Danish national icon, sometimes we haven't necessarily looked at aspects of his life, his, his anxiety and loneliness and his, his um, complicated sexuality. But also because I felt that he was, as there's an element of travel in this book, I felt that he connected very much with that because he was such a great traveller and because his story, some of his best fairy tales have travel elements in them. But on the other hand, there was somebody like Ivan Khodjakov who grew up in Siberia and and, and collected tales in, in Russia and and put together uh, the, the uh, collection of tales at the age of just 18. And he is almost unknown in the English speaking world. So I felt like, okay, this is somebody, this is news, you know, this is somebody who, who hasn't really been given much credit for his amazing achievements um, and who also had a really shocking life. You know, he got involved in a, in a political organization that 
decided that they needed to assassinate the Tsar and he got involved in that particular conspiracy and ended up in a psychiatric ward in Siberia and lived um, a period of his life in the coldest town on earth, which he we know it was the coldest because he recorded it himself as minus, 60 degree, minus 63 degrees Celsius. So there, it was that sense of trying to bring out lives mostly lives that are unknown. And I mean, there's one famous figure in the book, Hans Christian Andersen, but the rest of them, they're people like Gabriel Susan Babo de Villeneuve, who, who wrote the, the first version of the story, Beauty and the Beast. Obviously, there were versions of monster groom stories before that, but the story that we know as Beauty of the Beast with the particular template of the plot that we know that we would, most of us would recognize is, is her story. And she wasn't given much credit for that, even in her own lifetime. Or there's Dorchenvild who lived opposite the Grimm's. And I thought, well, I'm not going to write a you know, a chapter about the Grimm's, there's so much about them, but but it would be interesting to go into the life of, of of one of their contributors and choose the one whose life I found to be really, really exciting and interesting. Or there's Gian Battista Basile, who who I find really, really amazing how little he's known, but he he collected together the the first full fairy tale collection in Europe, and it includes the first full version of Cinderella, of 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 Rapunzel. Obviously, as I mentioned before, it has that image from the from the Persian epic, but as a full fairy tale story that we would recognize with the with the witch and the tower and the prince and so on it's 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 there really for the first time in in Basile's version um, as well as very early versions of stories like Sleeping Beauty and even um, aspects of Hansel and Gretel so he's a really important figure in the history of fairy tales and his stories traveled in into France where they were they were translated and we could find versions of, of fairy tales that were told in France in the late 17th century that were very influenced by him and then became a, a big phenomenon so um, he's somebody who who has been sort of lost by history a little bit, but um, you know who had a really interesting peripatetic life. He was a courtier who had to move around from one court to another, and he was constantly sort of roaming around trying to trying to make his fortune. It never quite worked until he ended up getting killed by by an eruption of Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> so um, his his and he was a wonderful character. I mean, the the character one of the reasons I think that his his stories weren't quite so successful actually in his lifetime is because he's put so much of his own personality into them so they're a bit sort of they're a bit too much you know they're so uh, so full of charisma that the, 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 his charisma almost gets in the way of telling the stories yeah. but um they're you know, wonderfully charming to read and um full of full of color and, and so hugely influential in the history of fairy telling so so i overall i was trying to put together a sort of history of the fairy tale that that's that that stretches across the centuries, but also stretches around different parts of the world. There's a storyteller from India, for example, mm-hmm. Somadeva. There's um, Basile from Italy. There's a Middle Eastern storyteller, Hanadiab. There's the Siberian storyteller, Ivan Khodjakov. So, so I wanted to sort of stretch out a little bit beyond the, the, the what's, you know, we, I think most histories of fairy tales tend to focus more on Western Europe. And I wanted to stretch that out a little bit. I mean, you can never stretch out enough. And obviously, a lot of it was dependent on what sources I could get my hands on. But to try and pull together a, na- a coherent narrative that that tells that history and brings it from those sort of early oral stories told around the half places up to the beginning of of the children's book industry, which is really where the where the where the story of this book ends with mm-hmm. with Hans Christian Andersen, and then sort of that sense of moving on into. The, the production modes of of the of 20th century children's literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I like about your book is that it gives us the story of the tellers, but it uses, I think, the the fairy tales and the the lives of the fairy tellers as a frame to also explore the place and the history, or you know, the context from which these stories arise. And, and you know, that's just 
you know, fascinating part that's often neglected in, in, I guess, the, the conversations that I've had or that I've heard about, about the fairy tales of the context from which these stories arise. So, um, what you kind of touched upon this a little bit, but, um, what, what can you say about the, the connection between, uh, the place and the, the stories is, 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 is place and story, is that um, kind of an essential part of, you know, understanding the evolution of, of these fairy tales? I think a lot of stories, we, we think of them as being very universal because they get retold in so many different mm-hmm. cultures. So, I mean, for example, Cinderella, I think, is the most famous one. That, that There's a version of Cinderella in almost every country around the world. And yet, if you look at the the trajectory of how that story gets evolved and changed as it moves into different countries, it tends to take on something of the the local landscape. And I think stories have to in order to endure. So the earliest full version of Cinderella that I found is from China, where the the fact that she has such small feet is supposedly connected to the the foot binding culture of the Tang Dynasty. But the earliest version in Europe, which is in Giambattista Basile's Tale of Tales, is the earliest full version. Obviously, there are fragmentary elements of the story that we could find scattered across literature elsewhere. But as a sort of full version of the story that we would recognize as Cinderella and in which she's called in, in Basile's version, Cenerentola. So it's that, the same name, really, that's mm-hmm. been translated into French and in English. And, and that version has lots of elements that feel very much part of the uh, Italian and, and in Bazzida's case, Neapolitan culture. So they have ravioli and ricotta-filled pastries at the ball, feasts. And, and there's a sense of a sort of noise, the noisy streets, which you don't get when you get into the French version, which was told by Charles Perrault. And that's where the story really sort of exploded into being this huge sort of global bestseller and where you you have the beginning of the idea of the glass slipper in the sense of a of a more refined more uh, more elegant story and and the heroine um losing some of the character that she has in the neapolitan version in the neapolitan version she she kills her own stepmother she 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 um asks her to to dig out some rags for her from a closed chest and then snaps a little on her and, and breaks her neck so there's something a sense that she's uh, you know quite a quite a lively character whereas once you get into the french version she's being straight jacketed into ideas of a sort of more docile a female heroine and it's one of the things that makes the neapolitan fairy tale so exciting and another thing that probably explains why they haven't endured as much in sort of conventional um, conservative society that they have so many really great heroines who who speak their mind and who are very proactive and obviously in the 19th century, that is something that, that, that wasn't um, really allowed so much. So it sort of got, got, got sort of crushed a bit, so a lot. So I think to come back to your question, as I feel like I may be going off on tangents here, but I think with each version of these, of these stories, you can sense that, that the local environment is, is, is absorbing it and is, it's, it's getting sort of mixed up with the roots of that environment so that it, so that it can work there. And I think that's, that's what stories do. Mm-hmm. They have to evolve and they have to adapt to the local environment. So I think that they, they, that's where you can sense that there is always this, this connection with place. But then there are other stories where they come very much, very specifically out of a particular place. So I, mean, I, I end the book with the Snow Queen, which is a story that is very much a story of Scandinavia, of, of, of the North. And it starts not just in any old Danish town with Gerda and Kai playing together before, uh, before Kai gets a, a shard of ice, a shard of glass from a, from a magic mirror in his heart. But they're in 
according to Hans Christian Andersen's diaries, they're in specifically the town where he grew up and he was basing that, that element of the story on his own childhood. And then Kai disappears and then Gerda rides a, 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 well, a carriage and, and a boat and eventually a talking reindeer all the way through Lapland to the Palace of the Snow Queen. And so there's a very strong sense, because Andersen was an absolutely brilliant world builder. So there's a very strong sense of the landscape around her as, as, as the snow flurries around her. And as she moves from these, these sort of dark forest landscapes into the snowy plains that lead to the palace. And so that's a story that is absolutely embedded in a sense of landscape and is, is influenced, I think, by Andersen's reading of, of the far north and also of his own journeys and, and travels up, up, up through northern parts of Scandinavia. Yeah, it seems like you know, as these stories get passed along from place to place or culture to cu- culture, the stories get like pressed and and molded into, you know, the the mores and the 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 culture, the ideals of a place uh, that chooses to to tell that story. It kind of it, it it adapts or kind of fits the mold of of, of certain ideals, and that's interesting. Earlier, um, though, you'd mentioned that uh, your book um, has elements of of travel in it, and in the prologue of your book, you wrote something about um, uh, kind of looking through old uh, tr- travel journals, trying to like um, see what you had in your old journeys um, that could connect to this idea of this new book that you're that you're that you're writing. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this. Um, this is I'm assuming this is a book that was um, written and researched during the pandemic, mostly. Is that right? So I, I did a bunch of journeys sort of just before the pandemic. Obviously, I didn't know the pandemic was coming at that point. Okay. So my, uh, my aim at the time was, was that I would be doing more traveling. But I was able to get out to various places in Scandinavia and Italy and, 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 and Germany for, to research those elements, which went into the sections I've written about um, Dorchenville and the, and the Brothers Grimm, all about Hans Christian Andersen, about the Empress de Basile. But of course, I, yeah, I had I had hoped that I might be able to travel a little bit further. But then, of course, the pandemic came along, and and so then the book, the book was moving a little bit more to. It was very much always going to be, I think, more of a history book than a travel book. But that obviously pushed it much more towards looking into archives and sources. And um, and I think at an early stage, I hadn't even really been the 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 Kashmiri section about the ocean of the streams of story was something that came in later really through my reading i was originally going to write about something else actually another storyteller but the more i read about the ocean of the streams of story it just completely hooked me mm-hmm. and then once i got into reading it and it's a very very long read i mean there's over 350 tales in it but it absolutely overwhelmed me i was fascinated by it and 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 thought oh my gosh you know i want to know more and more about and who is this person somadeva and there's not very much evidence about him but fortunately there is quite a lot of information about the world that he lived in because there were chronicles that were left by medieval writers in that period and so it's possible to piece together a depiction of of the court that he wrote in and it's a I think it's a sort of beautiful story really of this um a queen queen suryavati who 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 was very troubled in a time of great conflict. Her husband and her son were at loggerheads over over the kingdom, and and, and all kinds of terrible things were happening. Her, her 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 guards were being poisoned or set on fire, and all kinds of catastrophes. And so she 
she turned to her poet, her court poet, Zomadeva, to tell her stories. And so the idea is he told her these, these beautiful, strange, magical tales and, and, and they wiled away the time for her. It's sort of like binging on, a, on box sets one after another. <laughs> tales of you know, strange transformations of lovers canoodling in, in lotus lakes, of, 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 of beautiful men and women suddenly appearing out of flowers and um, people, you know, there's a hero who, who rides in a, in a in a dead elephant skin that gets carried by a talking bird to Sri Lanka. There's a tale of a, of a gambler who's, who's, who's a sort of ne'er-do-well who, 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 who decides to set off in search of the city of gold and eventually rides on the back of a talking bird to reach this beautiful city. So all these sort of wonderful stories and Somadeva put them together. And as I was reading about them, I was thinking, well, you know, I'd love to write about this, but the thing is, oh, you know, what, I'm not going to get to Kashmir, you know, over the next, over the next <laughs> right. few months, probably. And then I thought, well, I've been to Kashmir and I never wrote about it. And it was, uh, you know, years ago when I'd, um, I'd written a book about traveling in the footsteps of, of a Persian poet, Fadosi, to, to Ghazni. And in, at the time, I had then traveled on from there, and, and Ghazni is in Afghanistan, and I traveled on from there through Pakistan and India. And when it came to writing the book, I realized that it was so unwieldy, the journey, you know, it had taken over, you know, it was sort of, you know, a couple of years of travel, really. So, um, so I ended up cutting it and sort of ending it, ending, ending the book at, at, at the Afghan section. And, and, pretty much forgot about, you know, had sort of discarded that, that, that whole journey and not really thought about it. And so many people, you know, obviously so many people have written sort of wonderful books about India that I, I didn't think I really had anything to add to that. Um, but then I realized, well, this, you know, here's something. So I started looking through, through my old notes and, and realizing that, yes, I had, I had been to the very places where Somadeva lived and, and, and had seen the, the medieval, because I've always been so fascinated by medieval history. So I'd seen so many places that connected with his life and with his story. So it felt like a kind of magical discovery in a way to realize that I was able through my old journals and through these old travels to somehow make that sort of connection and to, to get a sense of the landscape that he was writing out of. And, and once I did that, once I started looking into those notes and, and digging out my photographs from the, from the journey as well, I felt like I really connected much more closely with those stories and I was able to sort of get a sense of, of, of the, the landscapes mm-hmm. that they grew out of. Reading your book, I mean, the chapters, you know, clearly have, you know, these wonderful descriptions of place and they're kind of rooted in, in, in place and context, uh, very, very much so. Um, but, oh, thanks. you know, be, because most of your, if not all of your previous books are um, travel books, I was just kind of, Wanting to to kind of ask you how how your experience in writing travel books how this may have helped you uh, to write this book are, are there any kind of skills or anything that translates from those um, kind of travel oriented books to to this book that deals with um, less so but also travel and place and history and context I, I guess I'm fumbling through this question I don't I don't know if I'm asking it clearly um, but I'm just asking like yeah, no, I, I, well, I'll try my best to answer. I think, I mean, firstly, I think that my own instincts are naturally towards travel. So even when I go back to the fairy tales that I loved as a child, they were stories like the Snow Queen or the stories of Sinbad um, or the Ebony Horse. They were stories where people were going from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's, you know, that's what so many children's stories are. I mean, children right. are wonderful explorers, aren't they? And roamers. And, and, and I think some, in some ways that travel writers perhaps are people who, who don't lose that, you know, who stay, who keep that sort of childlike 
desire to keep sort of roaming and getting out there and having adventures. And so I think that's something that has probably stuck with me and is probably one of the reasons why I came to writing this book in the first place. And then I think that a lot of the the tellers who I chose are people who themselves traveled. So Hans Christian Andersen traveled a lot in his life. He traveled to Morocco, to Constantinople, to Italy. He had wonderfully sort of crazy experiences in some of these places because um, he was often, he was a very awkward character. And so he got himself into all kinds of hijinks. The Syrian character in, in the book, Hannah Diab, he had an amazing journey. He grew up in Aleppo, but he left there with a French archaeologist, traveled across the Levant, mm -hmm. went to Africa, to Tunisia. He ended up crossing the Mediterranean with a couple of desert Jaboas, which he presented at the court of Versailles when they got to Paris, then spent a bit of time in Paris, then got in all kinds of uh, trouble with the elite, the literary elite of Paris, because like so many of the storytellers in this book, the, the literary establishment didn't treat him very well. And so then he, he, he ended up having to leave and went back via Constantinople and eventually making his way home. So he had an amazing journey and he, and he recorded it in a memoir. And I think one of the skills you, you mentioned, sort of what skills you might have picked up along the way, I guess one of, one of the things, I don't know if it's a skill, but certainly as a sort of habit, I suppose, is that I've read a lot of travel writings from sort of centuries past. So, mm. you know, an earlier book I wrote about Leo Africanus, um, who, who traveled across North Africa. And I think that the, reading those kind of books has, uh, has, has helped me with, with looking at some of these memoirs, which read in many ways like travel books. So Hannah Diab's book is in many ways, he actually calls it the book of travels. The memoir left by the Russian writer Ivan Khodjakov as well has a lot of travel elements in it. He traveled from Siberia to Kazan to, um, uh, to, to Moscow and St. Petersburg, but he also traveled into Western Europe to Geneva to meet up with socialists of, 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 that, of the emerging socialist movement of the time. So he had a lot of travel in his own life as well. And, uh, you know, travel it tells you so much about people, doesn't it? It's often the people often do record their travels and their journeys. So it is often the way that you're able to get into somebody's life and, and, and to find out a little bit about it. I mean, even with somebody who led a very static life, like Dorch and Wild, who married Wilhelm Grimm, she left a lot of letters and, and memoirs behind. And so there are little sort of travel elements in, in those that help to give a bit of an insight into her life. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a so I think all of that helped to, to sort of, to piece together these people's lives. But I think also it was important for me to, to travel into their lives in some way, because I think that I have this 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 feeling that that's how you connect. The travel for me is 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 about connection and not just uh, sort of contemporary connection, but connection across history. I mean, and it, you don't necessarily have to travel actually. I mean, I, just around the corner from where I live, or about a mile from where I live, there's a there's a footprint um, in in a quarry of a uh, of a of a dinosaur, and and people come there to 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 take a look at it. Um, and I'm all, you know, I've visited many, many times, but I'm still awestruck whenever I go there and, and feel that sort of, that you're looking through a sort of pinhole back through 60 million years. And I guess that with a lot of travels, that's something that I want to do to try and sort of peel back history and, and try and connect, sort of try and visualize that time from long ago. So in this case, it was, you know, to go to Hans Christian Andersen's house where he grew up and to stand there in mm -hmm. the room where his father would have been working, working on the last as a cobbler and to see the tiny little wooden bed and, and, and the pipe and, and the plates hanging up on the wall. Or to go to Naples where Gian Battista Basile lived and to walk down from the Spanish quarter onto the Via dei Tribunali and you, you walk down between in the old city of Naples and the structure of the city is very much the same as it was 
in the 17th century and and and, and you you walk down between these beautiful churches to the um the Pier Monte della Misericordia where there's a painting by Caravaggio of the seven acts of mercy and it's a painting that is a depiction really of, of Naples. He's, put, he's, he's depicted them through biblical scenes, but the characters are drawn from life. And so you feel like you're, you're wormholing right into Naples of that time of the early 17th century. Mm-hmm. Context and is so, hugely yeah, important. So, yeah. So these, were, these experiences were really necessary for me to be able to feel that I was connecting with the lives that I was describing. And I think that I would have struggled to to put these people's lives into words if I wasn't able to somehow have that sense of a sort of physical connection there. Mm-hmm. And in the, the translation of, uh, or the, the, the term for fairy tales and some of the other languages, um, which you reference in the book, mm. one of them, isn't one of them even something like little adventures or, um, uh, kind of little, yes. little travels or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, the the Danish one is eventyr, which means adventure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and there are so many different terms in different languages. So yeah, which is one of the exciting things actually that it's very di- one of the reasons why it's difficult to pin down what a fairy tale is because every language has its own term and there many of them have very different meanings. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, well, just to wrap things up, I want to throw one last question to you. Um, it's kind of a, a more lighthearted question. Um, what is uh your favorite tale to tell your kids? I think the, the one that I was excited the most by the response was probably the Firebird, which is a Russian tale that was collected by Ivan Kudyakov and, and, and several other Russian collectors. And it's a really magical adventure of this hero who sets out to find this beautiful bird and has to go into all sorts of scrapes and, and difficulties on the way but it thrilled my youngest child so much that because the story begins with this beautiful bird stealing the golden apples in the king's garden and so we'd be out in the garden and my son would say oh is the firebird going to come and steal the apples so i loved how how the story had sort of re- his imagination had 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 sort of responded to this story and it it's not one of the more famous stories i suppose so i so i i, I was sort of really thrilled by the reaction that it got and that mm-hmm. they asked me to, to retell that story several times do you res- resist the urge to tell them the more frightening ones <laughs> <laughs> sometimes when they've been very naughty <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, nick jubber thank you so much for talking with me today your new book the fairy tellers i think it came out in january of this year 2022 and will be out in the united states uh later this year if i'm not mistaken maybe june is that in right May. in may okay so very soon Thank you so much for your time, Nick. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Jeremy. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com slash support.